note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We good? Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ethan. Uh, I hope you had a nice summer break and, and got up to some fun things. Yes, man. It was so great spending time with family and just hanging out. But uh, I did miss our little chats a little bit. Yeah, you know, I did too. There's still so much to talk about in, in the world of LEGO video games. We've really just sort of scratched the surface. Uh, and fortunately for us, and, and hopefully for you, listeners, our Season 3 kickoff this week is a great example of all the stuff out there that we haven't talked about before. Yes, and we are super excited because we're talking about Junkbot, the early days of the Lego.com website where it lived, and how the New York game dev scene so deeply impacted the look and feel of both the website and those really neat web games. Yeah, Junkbot was such a cool game when it hit Lego.com back in 2001. It, it combined the inherent creativity and core building nature of Lego bricks with the distinct New York dev scene aesthetic. Instead of putting you in control of the eponymous Junkbot, a sly-looking, trash-eating robot who always seems to be giving you the side-eye, players have to build a safe path for the machine so it can eat up all of the trash cans on that level. Oh, yeah. Basically, you spend your time picking up Lego bricks and then plopping them down to form platforms for Junkbot. In many ways, the gameplay is very similar to that stunningly beautiful Builder's Journey, you know, a game that we, Ethan, you and I have talked a lot about, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, which has you plucking up Lego bricks and moving them around to empower the journey of a father and son who are made up of Lego elements. 2001's Junkbot was so popular that fans have found ways to keep playing it even though it dropped from the site more than a decade ago. And the software used to play the game is no longer officially supported anywhere. Junkbot even has some super fans within the LEGO group. The little bot Junkbot, or references to it, have popped up in a Ninjago theme set and the Haunted House set as well. But before we dive into the game's creation, it would help to have a better sense of where it came from, to explore the roots of the New York City game dev scene in the years leading up to Junkbot's release, and how that led to not just Junkbot, but also many of the creations on LEGO.com. 
Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating, Ethan. Despite being a hub for media, art, and finance, New York City still doesn't have a major AAA game development scene, at least not like you'd find on the other coast in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a thriving community of game makers in the Big Apple, just that development in the city has taken on a different form than on the West Coast. So New York City is home to the headquarters or, or offices of some major publishers like Avalanche and Take-Two and, and Rockstar Games. There's also a thriving mobile game development community. And of course, when major media companies like Viacom or the New York Times start looking into game development, they usually start in New York City. For purposes of our story, though, the most relevant elements of the New York game scene are tied to the universities, art scenes, and advertising. Back in 1995, Word Magazine went live online. It was this amazing website that pushed hard on the edges of interactive experiences, mixing together stories, interviews, games, music, and the like to deliver this experimental content. We published a lot of literary nonfiction and autobiographical nonfiction. But we also had a lot of interactive experiments. Yeah, like motion comics and flash animations and um, sort of audio experiences and things like that because we were in this experimental early days of the web trying to figure out what's the best way to use this, this new medium. This is Naomi Clark, who was an editor on the website back in the late 90s. She said she eventually convinced the editor-in-chief at the time to have the website try its hand at publishing an online game. Initially, the idea was to create a multi-user dungeon, or MUD, which was basically a text-based precursor to today's massively multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft. But as more people came onto the project, the idea began to shift. As producer, Naomi Clark brought on lead programmer Ranjit Bhatnagar, art director Yoshi Sodioka, and game designer Eric Zimmerman to create the game. Batnagar was making a name for himself at Word with his technology experiments at the time and pushed the team to create the title on Macromedia Shockwave. The group also started looking at card games for inspiration. It was out of this collection of creators that Sissy Fight 2000 was born, a cute online social game that had players taking on the role of little girls in a playground striving to maintain their self-esteem while lowering the self-esteem of their playmates. The game was a surprisingly massive hit for Word.com. It got quite a lot of traffic. It has several hundred thousand players, which was a lot for the time. Uh, you know, comparable to some of the MMOs of the time. Uh, maybe because it was a free game, unlike those games. That was a big part of my resume when eventually Word.com closed down. When Word.com closed down, Naomi found herself looking for a job and discovered an ad from the Lego group for a new office they were forming to, among other things, support the expansion of the official Lego.com website. Sissify was a huge part of my portfolio, saying, like, I did this pretty groundbreaking thing. Nobody had really made a, a game that you could play with other people on the web before that. There were maybe a few small experiments, but it was definitely the biggest one that had ever been made at that point. So if I had to guess one reason that uh, the LEGO group hired me, it was, it was probably because of that game. I went to work for the LEGO group, and Ranjit and Eric, along with uh, another collaborator of theirs, Peter Lee, started Game Lab to make more small games. 
Lego.com launched on March 22, 1996, but it was a very different sort of website than what you find online today. Well, the very early versions of, of Lego.com were, I think, a, a, just a little bit like, uh, almost like seeing a scan of the catalog, right? Uh, just showing a bunch of products, mostly static images of products of, of various Lego sets. And at some point, I think not. I think a little bit before I started, the Lego.com shop opened up. So they opened shop.lego.com, and it was it was a pretty early e-commerce website. You know, in, in the '90s, by the late '90s, uh, those kinds of e-commerce projects had started to get a little bit more sophisticated. But it wasn't anywhere near as smooth as as today's online shopping experiences are. So it, it was a yeah an early experiment. But when I started. Which I guess was yes, yeah, probably around two two thousand. We started working on a new type of website underneath the umbrella of Lego.com. I think the first big project I worked on was Bionicle, which was also kind of a shift in how the Lego Group was marketing products. There were there were a lot of people across multiple continents working on the storyline and the animation, sort of displaying the characters in Bionicle. And the group that was working on Lego.com, we put together a, a pretty complex website that had multimedia and, and animation of the characters and lots of deep information about the story world. The tremendous response to Bionicle's Matanui Online game, which was developed by Templar Studios for the website, helped to convince the Lego group that it should invest in more games for its website, Naomi said. So we were excited about it, but we had no idea how big it was going to get. So I think the thing that really helped make more game projects on lego.com was just the high quality of the first couple chapters of the Matanui online game. Because you could see it, even without Bionicle growing to be the enormous toy and transmedia craze that it became, Everyone could kind of see, oh, there's some real potential here, and the you know the budget was not enormous. It was larger than uh, a larger budget than the Lego Group had spent on online games in the past, but it, it justified itself very clearly in the in the storytelling and the production and the visuals. So I think that that it really did spark uh, another era. The first step in that era of bringing more web games to Lego.com had Naomi diving back into the New York game development scene. Yeah, so the New York game development scene, I think it was it was just starting to grow and get bigger around that time. I guess the these were studios that were making what are what later came to be called adver games. They were small uh, flash and shockwave games that were usually part of an ad campaign. And all sorts of different products were making games back in those days. Like I'm not sure if the same if, if it exists in quite the same way now, right? But you know, Colgate toothpaste was putting out a new line of toothpaste, and they had like you know ads that were showing up on cartoon shows on primetime about I don't know their new Berry Blast toothpaste or something. Right? I'm just making this up. They would have a game that was like a Berry Blast toothpaste game on their on Colgate.com. It was. It was kind of a new trend, a new way of, of, like I've been saying, creating engagement online. So the game studios in the New York area, New York, New York is such an interesting, odd place for the game industry because we don't have very many large studios. I think like Avalanche Studios is maybe one of the only really big game production and development studios that has development right in New York City. 
But we've had a lot of smaller studios, in part because, yeah, you you need less real estate in order to support a small team of developers of, you know, between 10 and 20. And it was really because of this type of client work that game studios were able to do that companies like like Game Lab that made Junkbot and Electric Fun Stuff, and then uh, companies like Large Animal and Templar Studios, you know, all of whom you know worked for Lego at one point or another, were able to sort of spring up and support themselves and also work on their own independent project. It was a really fascinating confluence, right? Because it, it wasn't like working with a, an advertising agency where they were only doing work for hire. These were teams of people that had come together uh, with a dream of making games and saying like, okay, we have our own ideas for games we want to make. And also we'll work with a variety of other people to to realize their ideas for games. So there was a bit of a creative uh, explosion or, or like, you know, a Cambrian stew of, of people with interesting ideas who came from a bunch of different backgrounds, uh, you know, some of whom had worked on other kids or educational websites, some who were, were coming from other parts of advertising, all mixing together. And we were aware of, of these uh, other companies, right? There were all of these people who happened to be in New York because that's where all of these experiments were happening. And we all rubbed shoulders with each other and worked with each other. And then the LEGO group started up a new office for LEGO Direct in New York. And Brad Justice's idea was, hey, there are just tons of really creative people in New York. This is the heart of, of marketing. It's the, the content capital of the internet, at least in the United States back then. So he's like, we should have a base of operations here and really harness this creative power. Uh, and yeah, and I think that the, you know that's where all of the you know this era of games really got got its start. Back in 2000, when Word Magazine shut down and Naomi Clark found her way to the Lego Group's Lego.com, Eric Zimmerman teamed up with Peter Lee to form a new independent game studio called Game Lab. Ranjit Bhatnagar, fresh off his work on Sissy Fight 2000, joined the studio as the technical director, and Frank Lance came on board as a designer. The studio would go on to develop dozens of games for brands as diverse as HBO, Play First, Nickelodeon, and, of course, the LEGO Group. They are probably best known for creating Diner Dash in 2003, which at one point was one of the most downloaded games of all time. Game Lab was a independent game studio. This is Eric Zimmerman speaking. Based in New York City that focused on online games and specifically games for a mass market. We were sort of an indie studio, but before indie games was a thing. The studio's first game, Blix, ended up winning an award at the 2000 Independent Game Festival, which helped bankroll Game Lab's new Manhattan office. The studio was just getting off the ground in 2001 when Naomi Clark reached out to Eric and his team at GameLab. I saw this relationship that LEGO Direct and the LEGO Group had with Templar Studios making the Montanui online game. And I thought, oh, you know, I should really talk to my friends at GameLab and see whether that you know they could also work on some games because honestly Templar Studios had its hands full working on the Montanui online game and other projects and so we actually it was to the benefit of the folks working at lego.com that there were more than one game studio in the New York area so we started talking about doing games for lego.com and looking for for interesting opportunities and, and that's really how the conversation started for Lego Junkbot which was part of the first project that I got to run 
on my own that I was in charge of at at lego.com was called the build section of the website. That connection between Naomi, Eric, and the rest of the Game Lab crew would eventually lead to a lasting relationship between Game Lab and the Lego group, with the studio creating a dozen games for the website. But the first was perhaps the most memorable, Junkbot. The first step for Game Lab was to brainstorm ideas around both the brand and any particular direction they were looking for in a game, Eric said. Eventually, the studio came up with a two-part pitch document. One part is what we called the play values. These are sort of like the design pillars or principles that were behind the concepts that are in the second part of the document. But for the Lego group, those design values usually ended up being things like modularity, imagination-based play, open-ended problem-solving, construction and engineering. So those abstract values, we would then, in the second part of the document, translate into a handful of concepts, usually three to five different concepts. But we brought to the LEGO group a handful of concepts based on those play values, and then they would basically pick one. And from there, we would start prototyping. So we were very much a rapid prototyping design process. We often were proposing not genre-based games, but games with innovative play mechanics. That was kind of our signature approach as a design studio. We always wanted to invent new ways for people to play. In the case of Junkbot, the concept that LEGO selected was about a character that walked on its own in a, in a sort of a 2D platformer kind of world, and that you were building staircases and and moving Lego bricks around to, to kind of help them get around. So that core idea, I'm pretty sure, was the, was the basis of what we proposed to the Lego group. A big part of that initial pitch for what would become Junkbot was working to boil down the core conceit of Lego bricks and Lego play, Frank Lance said. The idea of Junkbot comes from the core mechanic of you're going to build the level. So you're not going to control the character. So the, the idea is what kind of game can you make that really embodies the fun of playing with Lego bricks. And so, well, let's do a platformer where instead of controlling the character, you construct the level. And everything else just flows from that, that core mechanic, right? That's the, that's the whole idea. It's like, okay, so once you have that idea, then you spend a lot of time on the basic controls of how you manipulate bricks, which is really non-trivial. Like that's the, like a big part of, of Junkbot was figuring out uh, how in this kind of 2D way can you make an intuitive and satisfying construction mechanic. So you're grabbing bricks and how do they respond and how do you pull a brick apart and how do you snap a brick in? And then kind of once we had that working, it was all a matter of, of level design. Now, how do you make levels around that that are really interesting and how do you explore kind of all the dimensions and figure out all the things that are interesting and cool to do with that central idea. One of the central issues the group had to solve was figuring out how to manipulate Lego bricks in a digital 2D environment, said Ranjit Bhagnagar. Lego wanted a game that really felt like playing with Lego bricks. So it was super important to us to have a game where there was a very satisfying feeling of taking apart and putting together models made out of Lego bricks. But of course, it also had to be a good game. 
And this is exactly the kind of thinking that Eric Zimmerman is really good at and GameLab as a whole is really good at. So I'm sure, I can't say after all these years, but I'm sure we had tons of brainstorming meetings talking about possibilities for how do you make something that feels like pulling apart and sticking together these Lego bricks, but also then becomes a really challenging and interesting and fun game. And we also worked with a wonderful composer and sound designer, Michael Sweet. And I imagine he probably sent us dozens of different prototypes for the sounds of bricks clicking together and the sound of bricks being pried apart. And we picked our favorites of those with a lot of testing on the screen to see how it was. Yeah, we just, it was, it was the central issue. And I think we spent a lot of time on it. This is Frank Lance speaking. It was a matter of brainstorming different possible approaches and then a lot of prototyping. You know, uh, Ranjit Bhatnagar was the main engineer on, on that project and Eric Zimmerman and Peter Lee and I just, we just spent a lot of time prototyping different ways of having the, the cursor interact with the objects and having kind of interpreting gestures of what happens when you, you know, what happens if you grab a, an attached Lego and pull it left and right? Nothing should happen, really, you know? What you want is to grab a Lego and when you pull it up, it should kind of like pop off. And then there's the kind of underlying physics of which Lego's bricks are free to grab at any time. So you have this kind of recursive logic of trying to interpret what the real world does kind of automatically by the limitations of the physical properties of the bricks, you had to kind of embody in the behavior of, of the system. So uh, yeah, we just prototyped it a lot. And then I think once we had something that felt right, we just kind of tuned it until, you know, we had the core system. The team also worked closely with Naomi Clark. Here's Frank Lance again. She had a, a kind of vision for the the kinds of games that that they wanted to make, and you know I think the the basic idea was just it was kind of still early days of the web, and people were kind of figuring out what the web was good for and what were the kinds of things that your website should have on it, and and the idea of like just having free games on your website was the idea, and so we worked really closely with Naomi, who was kind of really interested in making games that were genuine expressions of the fun of Lego bricks as a toy. Not just game experiences that were thematically, uh, you know, related to Lego bricks, but really game experiences that explored the same kinds of play patterns. And so that was that was the idea. Like, it was, it was genuinely, like a chance to kind of do some design thinking around what would be a video game that really kind of felt like the fun you had when you played with Lego bricks. Eric Zimmerman said the challenge of perfecting the Lego brick interaction remains one he recalls clearly, mostly because it came with a big lesson in game design in general. There, there's always challenges, but there, there's one, there was one really, really big challenge with Lego Junkbot that I, I still remember to this day because I, I learned so much from, from working on that game. So we initially prototyped the core interaction, which is what it is now. You click on a brick, you can move it around. It was actually very tricky, the logic of like, if I click on this brick, which bricks does it attach 
with what was intuitive, what was not intuitive, because now you know you can you can take a whole stack of bricks, like a whole build a staircase and then move the staircase if you click on the bottom brick. So you don't have to go one by one by one. We we initially had it just brick by brick and we realized that's really tedious. We want to move more bricks around. So we knew that it was gonna be about getting a getting an autonomously moving character around. So we liked that idea that Junkbot has really has life in this you don't control Junkbot directly. You just manipulate the environment Junkbot is in, and Junkbot kind of bounces back and forth like a like a happy-go-lucky robot that he is, and he just wants to take out all the trash in the uh, in each room of the factory. So we had checkpoints. I think maybe they were just flags at the beginning, not not really garbage. And we had some levels that we started designing with, you know, places you had to go up, places you had to go down, and the big challenge was that the game was boring. It was kind of like, oh, we get it. Like we we can move Junkbot around. And we started trying different levels, more intricate places, things where you had to be really clever. And it was just boring. And we were actually terrified because we said, hey, we've, we've exactly made the game that we said we were going to make, which is that there's an autonomous character walking back and forth, going up and down stairs. Uh, and you're building ramps and staircases to, to get over chasms. And we realized like, it's fun for like three minutes and that's it. And we had a hard time making levels. We just had to add stuff to the game. We had to add obstacles, hazards, enemies, power-ups, and then the game started getting fun. But that really goes against a lot of common sense game design wisdom, which is that you need a fun core mechanic. Your game should be fun. The vanilla level of your game should be engaging and rich and replayable and then you add special sauce, and that's the frosting on the cake. But in the case of Junkbot, and this is just that games are weird, and any rule of good game design you can always find exceptions to, in Junkbot, the frosting became the cake. So the special stuff that we were adding that was like the decoration, oh, we'll add, that's what really made the game. And then we realized we actually don't need all of this in a level. We have, okay, let's add fans. Well, then let's add add fans and then the flying enemy. And so you usually just needed two or three elements in different combinations. And then those combinations started to bubble out into interesting combinations that provided new challenges. So that was the big lesson of Junkbot. And I know that that was in our thinking because we, we just thought, oh, Lego Junkbot is not good, but Lego Junkbot with stuff is great. And so once we had that, at least in terms of the game design, things took off. What I love about that little lesson is that, yeah, it still goes against this deeply engraved common sense wisdom for how you make a good game, right? Which is that you, you find a core mechanic and the core mechanic is fun. In this case, the core mechanic was conceptually interesting, but experientially lacking. I guess it's just like cooking, right? Sometimes you make a cake and it's so good you don't need the frosting, and other times the frosting makes the cake. So in the case of Junkbot, it was the frosting. Junkbot hit lego.com in 2001 after less than half a year of development. And while it didn't land as a massive hit, it quietly built up steadfast popularity among site visitors. Well, I think not a whole lot of people were paying attention to it. This is Naomi Clark. Uh, internal to the Lego group, right? Because the Junkbot's performance wasn't part of a, a marketing report that was part of somebody's bottom line trying to show how sales or marketing were doing for a product line, right? It was a, just a little educational experience. I would almost say it's, you know, it was a little bit like having a, 
a nonprofit or or like it was it was as PBS is to the commercial television stations here in the US uh, that we were doing it for its own sake. And so there was yeah there wasn't really anybody who was bothered by it and nobody who was super excited by it. It 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 had kind of an enduring popularity. It wasn't the biggest most heavily promoted thing on the website by any means because it was tucked off in its corner, but it had this very enthusiastic following because I think primarily it was a very high quality game and it was a challenging puzzle game that you had to think about that also had a cute cartoon aesthetic. So it had this mix of things that gave it staying power. Certainly one of the reasons for its success has to be the cheeky design of the junk bot itself. Eric said Game Lab co-founder Peter Lee deserves credit for that original design. We ended up with a robot because we thought, okay, this character just walks back and forth. This is Eric speaking. So we don't want it to be, you know, I don't know, an animal or a person that might have complicated thoughts. Like, it seems like it's just going on a program, right? But we ended up adding flourishes to the character and, you know, a lot through Peter and his influence on the game. For example, when Junkbot gets to a trash can, Junkbot eats the entire trash can. Oh, yeah. Opens up and just swallows it whole. And, like, there's just funny little things like that that it, it starts feeling absurd. It's like Junkbot's almost trying too hard in his job. <laughs> Don't eat the trash can too. Oh, well. And there's little little sounds that, that, that Junkbot makes. Um, there's cutscenes, especially in, in the sequel to Junkbot. There's even more cutscenes, but we tried to add those little flourishes of content around the game for the character. But there's a kind of mischievous playfulness to Junkbot. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's a there's a there's a I guess there's a sort of R2D2 like cute robot pet appeal to Junkbot. Junkbot's lasting appeal is evident in a number of ways, including the fact that every so often it pops up in other Lego Group products. More immediately though, the game's success helped to prove that games on the lego.com website were a good idea. It's certainly a part of why we kept doing more games with Game Lab. This is Naomi Clark speaking. But as far as the aesthetic of Junkbot and the face of Lego.com, I think Junkbot was definitely an attempt to make a character and a little digital experience that captured the the web aesthetic of the time, right? So it's it's pixelated. It has a lot of pixel art. And that's something we certainly used in more games going forward, in part because I think it makes a very nice marriage with Lego bricks and Lego products in general. The game's enduring popularity was in some ways fueled by the sequel, Junkbot Undercover, which hit in 2002, but also can be found in the fact that it was a fun and funny play experience. I think part of the secret is that we set out to make a game that was not just for kids, not talking down to kids, right? We were making a game that would be genuinely fun and challenging and interesting for adults, But we were making a game that was all about putting bricks together and figuring out what you can do with those bricks. And then there were just a bunch of other design touches that, you know, we we took really seriously every aspect of the game. One of the designers, Frank Lance, likes to talk about how Junkbot has great failure states. That was really important. And we spent a lot of time on Junkbot dying. And I think that's something that maybe kids did not get to see that often in games that were 
presented to them, right? Like, there are all sorts of hilarious ways that Junkbot dies, and it's okay because he's a robot and he gets back up and goes on, but he gets electrocuted, he gets fried uh, into little bits, like all sorts of bad things <laughs> happen to Junkbot, and he gets up and keeps going. But that kind of Looney Tunes, like, it's not really violent, right? Because uh, games from the Lego group are not violent. But they're they're funny, they're comical, and they give you this idea of like, oh, okay, there are some cartoony stakes here. And they're challenging, you know, so, so we were really pushing hard on kids having to figure out how to solve these levels themselves. And um, I don't know, I just think the character design, which is largely the work of Peter Lee, ended up being so charming. I fell in love with Junkbot, yeah, early on in production, because he's a spunky little robot who can't, you know, he, he can't really do all that much. He's not a super-powered he just likes to eat trash. And that's something that kids find funny too, right? That adults can appreciate. He's a robot who, whose goal in life is to eat trash. Eric Zimmerman said that all of the work the team put in trying to boil down the experiences of playing with physical Lego bricks contributed to the game's success. There's something when you are starting a new design problem and you're really having to figure out, how are we going to do this? How are we going to translate playing with Lego bricks into a video game. And I think that we actually spent a lot of time on Junkbot iterating on that idea and trying to figure it out. And we sort of nailed it. Like, I think we just did a really good job of, of translating certain aspects of the, the kind of modular construction-based play to Junkbot. And we, maybe on some of our other games, we went farther afield and explored other aspects of building with Lego bricks. Junkbot was not tied to a particular property, and so we had sort of creative license, and we ended up making this fun character, Junkbot, which didn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't tied to the Lego universe in a way. And I'm not saying that that's better or worse, but maybe that actually helped the game stick out in people's memories because it, it felt more like it had its own identity. And this is kind of the interesting paradox of, of advert games, right? That that you can make a game that you think, oh, this game is, is promoting this particular product line, but it, it turns out maybe with Junkbot as an example that trying to do something a little bit more inventive in terms of the intellectual property, inventing a new intellectual property, but within the brand of the Lego group sticks in people's minds more. Of all the games he worked on, Ranjit Bhatnagar said that Junkbot remains his favorite. I thought we did a really good job of making the feel very Lego-like with the ability to, to take things apart, put them together in a fairly freeform way, but still have goals to play the game. And the game as a whole was both cute and fun. Something that I actually wanted to bring up was we had a leaderboard on the site where the basic idea of the game is that in each level of the game, you have Junkbot, our protagonist, who's the little robot who walks around autonomously. You don't control him directly, but he turns around if he runs into an obstacle that he can't handle, or he, he'll walk upstairs if you build stairs for him. So there's Junkbot and there's a goal, and you have to take apart his environment, which is made entirely out of Lego bricks, and put it back together in a way that he can reach his goal. And the way the scoring works is the fewer moves you can do, the less change you make to the environment, the better your score. So it's kind of like golf, a low score is better. And we had an online leaderboard on the site where if you are able to solve a level in fewer moves than 
anyone else ever has before, you can put in your name and it'll show up on the leaderboard. And that was actually a, a really fun part of the game for me. So the studio Game Lab would go on to create dozens of games for Lego.com, including a sequel to Junkbot called Junkbot Undercover, which features gold bricks, walking trash cans, and friggin' laser beams. Nice. The, the studio shut down in 2009, but not before spinning off a nonprofit institute of play, which worked to inject more games and play into education. These days, many of the people involved in Game Lab and Junkbot's creation can be found at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, working in the prestigious art school's Game Center. Eric, Naomi, and Frank all teach at NYU Game Center, where they apply lessons learned working on games like Junkbot to developing tomorrow's game makers. Now, you taught there as well briefly too, didn't you, Brian? I did. I actually taught a game journalism class, and it was a ton of fun. That's cool. Well, I kind of would love to circle back to something you mentioned early or at the top of the podcast here about Lego Builder's journey. And I think the obvious question we both had early on was if there was a connection, right, between Lego JumpBot and Lego Builder's journey, you know, that concept of incorporating creative digital building with these, you know, matching Lego brick clutch sound effects and using that as kind of the key feature in the gameplay experience. And it reminded both of us of the gameplay mechanics that are involved in Lego Builder's Journey. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's amazing how similar the mechanic is between those two games. And there are people even uh, that we spoke to who think that Junkbot himself makes an appearance in the game. Unfortunately, that's not true. I actually spoke with Karsten Lund, uh, the creative director of Builder's Journey, about it, and he said he actually hadn't heard about Junkbot until after Builder's Journey was designed and someone at the Lego group pointed out that this other, much earlier web game existed. That's crazy. I would have thought that Karsten would have known that. So to me, that's also quite remarkable to hear that he wasn't aware. Uh, and again, it kind of fascinates me, this idea of just how intuitive the gameplay experience is with, you know, these digital bricks. And when you have Junkbot, you know, kind of walking back and forth and waiting for you to build this clear path with Lego bricks for him, um, I think that is actually something that many game designers and early visionaries had in mind when they thought about building with Lego bricks digitally. This idea of giving it some kind of function, some kind of gameplay experience. And Junkbot sure does that, and Lego Builder's Journey does that. And to me, this is kind of the beginning of some really interesting play with Lego bricks in this functional kind of game space of giving the Lego bricks a clear purpose when it comes to playing. I really love that. Yeah, you know, I think you look back or listen back in this case to what Frank Lance said and his discussion about how they came up with this concept for Junkbot and, and the fact that players actually don't really have agency. They're not controlling Junkbot. They are instead creating his path and how similar that is to Builder's Journey. I can't help but think that two decades apart, you have these really thoughtful game designers sitting down and trying to figure out what is at the core 
of Lego bricks and play and creation. And how can you translate that into something that's fun and not just an interesting experience, but one that really does capture the feeling of playing with Lego bricks. And I love that they essentially, again, two decades apart, came to the same conclusion and created two very different sorts of games with uh, the same sort of idea at its heart. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescente. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Manuel Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, founder music.com, excerpts from Lego Jumpbot and Lego Jumpbot Undercover, and Enrik Lindström from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade, Windows PC, and Nintendo Switch. We'd like to thank our participants, Rajit Bhaknagar, Naomi Clark, Frank Lance, and Eric Zimmerman. We'd also like to thank the entire Lego Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks@lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Bits and Bricks.